This is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show. And this combines two of our favorite themes, literary themes and historical ones. Paul Revere's Ride is a poem by an American poet, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, and it commemorates the actions of American patriot Paul Revere on April 18, 1775. Longfellow was inspired to write the poem after visiting the Old North Church in Boston and climbing its tower on April 5, 1860. He began writing the poem the very next day. It was published in the January 1861 issue of the Atlantic Monthly. Listen, my children, and you shall hear of the midnight ride of Paul Revere on the 18th of April in 75. Hardly a man is now alive who remembers that famous day and year. He said to his friend, If the British march by land or sea from the town tonight, hang a lantern aloft in the belfry arch of the North Church Tower as a signal light. One if by land and two if by sea, and I on the opposite shore will be ready to ride and spread the alarm through every Middlesex village and farm for the country folk to be up and to arm. Then he said, good night, and with muffled oar silently rowed to the Charlestown shore. Just as the moon rose over the bay, where swinging wide at her moorings lay the Somerset, British man-of-war, a phantom ship with each mast and spar across the moon like a prison bar, and a huge black hulk that was magnified by its own reflection in the tide. Meanwhile, his friend, through alley and street, wanders and watches with eager ears, till in the silence around him, he hears the muster of men at the barrack door, the sound of arms and the tramp of feet, and the measured tread of the grenadiers marching down to their boats on the shore. Then he climbed the tower of the old north church by the wooden stairs with stealthy tread to the belfry chamber overhead and startled the pigeons from their perch on the somber rafters that round him made masses and moving shapes of shade. By the trembling ladder, steep and tall, to the highest window in the wall, where he paused to listen and looked down a moment on the roofs of the town and the moonlight flowing over all. Beneath, in the churchyard, lay the dead and their night encampment on the hill, wrapped in silence so deep and still that he could hear like a sentinel's tread the watchful night wind as it went creeping along from tent to tent and seeming to whisper, All is well. A moment only he feels the spell of the place and the hour and the secret dread of the lonely belfry and the dead. For suddenly all his thoughts are bent on a shadowy something far away where the river widens to meet the bay, a line of black that bends and floats on the rising tide like a bridge of boats. Meanwhile, impatient to mount and ride, booted and spurred with a heavy stride on the opposite shore, walked Paul Revere. 
Now he patted his horse's side, now gazed at the landscape far and near, then impetuous stamped the earth and turned and tightened his saddle girth. But mostly he watched with eager search the belfry tower of the old North Church as it rose above the graves on the hill, lonely and spectral and somber and still. And lo! As he looks on the belfry's height, a glimmer and then a gleam of light. He springs to the saddle, the bridle he turns, but lingers and gazes till full on his sight. A second lamp in the belfry burns. A hurry of hoofs in a village street, a shape in the moonlight, a bulk in the dark. And beneath from the pebbles in passing, a spark struck out by a steed flying fearless and fleet. That was all, and yet through the gloom and the light, the fate of a nation was riding that night. And the spark struck out by that steed in his flight kindled the land into flame with its heat. He has left the village and mounted the steep, and beneath him, tranquil and broad and deep, is the mystic meeting the ocean tides. And under the alders that skirt its edge, now soft on the sand, now loud on the ledge, is heard the tramp of his steed as he rides. It was twelve by the village clock when he crossed the bridge into Medford town. He heard the crowing of the cock and the barking of the farmer's dog and felt the damp of the river fog that rises after the sun goes down. It was one by the village clock when he galloped into Lexington. He saw the gilded weathercock swim in the moonlight as he passed and the meeting house windows, blank and bare, gaze at him with a spectral glare as if they already stood aghast at the bloody work they would look upon. It was two by the village clock when he came to the bridge in Concord town. He heard the bleating of the flock and the twitter of birds among the trees and felt the breath of the morning breeze blowing over the meadows brown. And one was safe and asleep in his bed. Who at the bridge would be first to fall? Who that day would be lying dead, pierced by a British musket ball? You know the rest. In the books you have read how the British regulars fired and fled, how the farmers gave them ball for ball from behind each fence and farmyard wall, chasing the redcoats down the lane, then crossing the fields to emerge again under the trees at the turn of the road and only pausing to fire and load. So through the night rode Paul Revere. And so through the night went his cry of alarm to every Middlesex village and farm, a cry of defiance and not of fear, a voice in the darkness, a knock at the door, and a word that shall echo forevermore. For born on the night wind of the past, through all our history to the last, in the hour of darkness and peril and need, the people will waken and listen to hear the hurrying hoofbeats of that steed and the midnight message of Paul Revere. And what a reading, and what a story, folks. Longfellow visits the Old North Church, climbs its tower, and out this comes the next day. Gets in the Atlantic Monthly, January 1861. Still as relevant today as ever this story, reminding us how it all started. This is Our American Stories.
She saw both the lives flash before her eyes She didn't even have time to cry She was so scared She threw her hands up in the This is Our American Stories, and you're listening to Carrie Underwood's rendition of Jesus Take the Wheel. I know you're wondering why are you calling it a rendition. Well, like, it isn't often the case, and more often the case than not in country music. Sometimes in rock and roll, but often in country music. Someone else writes these songs. And we love to tell the story behind the story of songs anyway here on Our American Stories. We love music. We spend a lot of time on it. Because, well, we all love music. And some of the stories we've done behind the story of a song, Light My Fire, where Ray Manzarek walks us through how that song got made. It's just terrific. Give me shelter. You can't believe what brought that song together and made it stick. And another brick in the wall, you hear from Roger Waters himself explaining how that song came together. And then my personal favorite, Kenny Chesney's There Goes My Life, Wendell Mobley, who wrote the song, tells the story about how that song came to be. We hear the songwriter sing it, and then ultimately, of course, we hear Kenny Chesney's take. And in this particular case, it wasn't Carrie who wrote this. And again, Carrie Underwood, as you all know, was a big star out of American Idol in 2005, and she's gone on to just do such amazing and extraordinary work in every venue, including Broadway Live, which he did on television. She did The Sound of Music, and it was unbelievable. Uh, I think Julie Andrews was like, oh my goodness, that girl can do it. And it was live, which is no duck walk. So this song, Jesus Take the Wheel, was written by a guy named Brett James. And here he is talking about becoming a songwriter, his first guitar, and writing his first song. The very beginning for me started in Waco, Texas. I was a student at Baylor University. Any, any Baylor, I sit there. And uh, I'd grown up singing in church and, and being around music. I came from a really musical family, but I didn't play an instrument. I didn't, never thought about writing songs. I'm from Oklahoma, as is Ryan and Randy Grimmett and the Okies out there. Um, and growing up in Oklahoma, probably like where a lot of you guys are from, you know, becoming a songwriter is not on the list of professions that they give you when you enter high school. And so I didn't know my job existed, and so I didn't know that I could, I could go after it. Um, when I was 19, I asked for a, a guitar for Christmas. My mom bought me an $80 pawn shop guitar. It was a, called a Lincoln. It was a, nobody's probably ever heard. I'd never heard of a Lincoln. The action was about an inch and a half off the strings. I do remember that. <laughs> I, I then bought immediately uh, John Cougar Mellencamp's Scarecrow songbook because I already knew the album, and I thought, well, I can... Most of these songs have three chords in them. I can probably learn these. So that's how I started learning guitar. And for me, the next step in the process was very simple. Uh, as soon as I learned those three chords, for whatever reason, it seemed natural for me to write a song. Um, and that wasn't something I even thought about or planned on. It just, I know these three chords. Why don't I write something that, that 
some girl down the street might like. And uh, so that's how it, that was kind of the beginning for me. And that's how it starts off for so many musicians. Self-taught, we learned this about Irving Berlin, taught himself everything from scratch. Brett talks about when he was a failed recording artist, the time he was, and decided to finally just let go. And it was then that he found eventual success. Sometimes something just pops into your head and, and don't ever, for me, it's like, don't ever count it out, you know? And, and no, no matter how simple you think it might be, sometimes simplicity wins the day. Quick lesson for me might to be, you know, sometimes when you let it go, sometimes when you're not pushing so hard, that's when, that's when kind of God just takes over. I, 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 my story is I was in Nashville real quickly. I got offered a record deal. My first trip to Nashville with Arista was on Arista for seven years. Seven years later, all that went away. I was a failed recording artist, and I went back to medical school. And I started back to medical school on September 1st, and I was 30 years old and going to go be a doctor. But I was still writing songs. Um, I'd given up my dream of being a songwriter, of being a, you know, I just, that's okay. That, I, I, get, I had a great shot, and, and it wasn't going to work out for me. Uh, September 1st, I started med school. September 4th, Faith Hill killed one of my songs on the Breathe album. <laughs> I ended, okay. up, ended up with 33 more cuts in that nine months while I was going to med school every day. And the reason was because I kind of let go. I'd been in Nashville trying to push and trying to force and trying to fit my, what I did into their square hole, you know, or my round songs into their square hole. And, you know, when I went back to med school, I said, screw it. I got a job. You know, I'm going to be a doctor. I can write whatever the heck I want. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write stuff I like. And I sort of let go. And that freedom that he found leaving his dream got him his dream. Go figure. And that happens a lot, too. Here, Brett James talks about writing the song we've been talking about, Jesus Take the Wheel, followed by his performance at an ASCAP songwriter showcase of the first verse and the chorus. You got a blank sheet of paper looking at you, and what are we going to put on it? And, uh... And, you know, so we kind of started tossing around some thoughts, and Gordy said, you know, I got, this, I got one idea for a, a title. It's called When Jesus Takes the Wheel. And I immediately laughed. I thought, well, that's about the silliest thing I ever heard. And Hillary kind of chuckled, and we kind of tried to get our heads around that for a minute and moved on to something else. What do you think? Well, let's, let's talk about <laughs> some other titles. That one, I'm not sure about that one. But fortunately, uh, 10 or 15 minutes later, we came back to uh, When Jesus Takes the Wheel and uh, wrote a little song about a girl driving to Cincinnati and uh, ended up being called Jesus Take the Wheel. She was driving last Friday on her way to Cincinnati on a snow-white Christmas Eve. Going home to see her mama and her daddy with her baby in the backseat. Fifty miles to go when she was running low. Faith in gasoline It'd been a long, hard year She had a lot on her mind And she didn't pay attention She was going way too fast Before she knew what she was spinning On a thin black sheet of glass She saw both their lives flash before her eyes She didn't even have time to cry She was so scared She threw her hands up in the air Jesus, take the wheel, take it from my hands, cause I can't do this on my own, I'm letting go, so give me one more chance, and save me from this road I'm on, 
Jesus, take the wheel. And that's the first verse in chorus. And my sister's a professional songwriter, and she's always sent me snippets or lines that she wished she'd written. And the one on this one was 50 miles to go. She was running low on faith and gasoline. And those are little descriptors of that character and the thing that person's going through. It wasn't just that she hit a patch of ice. Her life had hit a patch of ice. And that's why she was asking Jesus to take the wheel. Now, you also heard Brett singing, and you could hear clearly why maybe Brett didn't make it as the singer-songwriter. But his God-given talents were in the writing, and my goodness, God-given talents of Carrie Underwood as a singer come to meet these two talents, and here is Carrie Underwood's take on this great song. When she made it to the shoulder and the car came to a stop She cried when she saw that baby in the backseat sleeping like a rock for the first time in a long time She bowed her head to pray She said, I'm sorry for the way I've been living my life I know I've got to change So from now on tonight Jesus, take the wheel This is Our American Stories, Brett James, his story, and the story of how Jesus Take the Wheel came to be, and Carrie Underwood takes us away. return to Our American Stories, and our next one is about a writer, a writer you may know, and you may have even read back in high school or college, if you were lucky enough, Louisa May Alcott, and she's the writer of Little Woman. The book was her most popular, and it's been adapted twice as a silent film and four times with sound. It's also been made into six television shows. Here's Faith with Louisa May's story. In the mid-19th century, few people felt that a woman could be unmarried, 
and still be happy and successful. Even live a fulfilled life. Author Louisa May Alcott was what people would have called an old maid. Yet her life was filled with many successes and experiences, including her most successful book, Little Women, which she wrote in 1868 and 1869 in two separate volumes. After the success of the first volume, her publisher asked her to write the second. But we often read them as one. The book is a semi-autobiographical account of her childhood with her three sisters. It follows the life of the four March girls, Meg, Joe, Beth, and Amy, who live with their mother, Marmy. While their father is serving off as a pastor miles away from home involved in the American Civil War, Alcott identified with Joe, the stubborn, willful, fiery-tempered, but charmingly creative second eldest daughter. I was born with a boy's nature and have fought my fight with a boy's spirit and a boy's wrath. Never liked girls or knew many, except my sisters. The book is the girl's journey from childhood to womanhood and all that lies therein. It's a romantic child's fiction and a sentimental novel. Literary historian Sarah Elbert argues that within Little Women, we find the first representation of the all-American girl and her multiple aspects displayed in the differing March sisters. While Little Women was the most successful of Louisa May Alcott's writings, it was actually the book that she never wanted to write. Niles wants a girl's story. Lively, simple books are very much needed for girls. I said I'd try. Here's Susan Cheever, writer of Louisa May Alcott, a personal biography, talking about how Alcott came to write Little Women. It was the book that absolutely changed her life. It made her rich. It made her well-known after years and years of struggle. Uh, but she didn't want to write it. It was the last thing she wanted to do. She felt it went against all of her creative impulses. She had said to her editor, I'll think about it, and stalled and stalled and stalled. She didn't want to do it at all. And it, she ended up doing it, as we'll see, through a series of unfortunate accidents. And I think that often... Great things happen to us through a series of what seemed to be unfortunate accidents. Uh, Louisa May Alcott was 36 years old when she wrote Little Women in 1868. She was the second of four daughters um, of an extraordinary family who lived in and around Boston. She was the daughter of Abba Alcott, who was an aristocrat who had married Bronson Alcott very late in life. He was one of these characters. He wore a cape and a big hat, and he carried a cane, and he had long blonde hair. Uh, but he had a lot of trouble making a living. Anyway, she was the daughter of Bronson Alcott, and Bronson Alcott, I believe, was an educational genius. He really was the first person in this country to start progressive education. And he did it because he believed, and he had no education, so he pulled this out of the sky. He believed that children were angels who came from heaven, as Wordsworth had written, trailing clouds of glory. Now, most people in the 1840s believed that children were vipers who had to be forcefully civilized before they could join us, you know, big people. Bronson believed the opposite. He believed that adults could learn from children. He gave Louisa one great thing, which was the community in which she grew up. His friends were Emerson and Thoreau and Hawthorne and all kinds of people like that. So as a girl, she was taught by Thoreau. She used Emerson's library right away. 
and she grew up in this extraordinary progressive intellectual community as the daughter of a man who was very respected in that community. Um, Bronson was fascinated by children, just fascinated. He wasn't just an educator, he was a kind of student of children. But she drove him a little bit crazy, and she was definitely the family rebel, and there was a lot of disappointment in in her, both from her father and her mother. Now, Bronson, this brilliant educator and this friend of the brilliant transcendentalist, had one, he had two big problems. One was he couldn't hang on to money, and the other was that he couldn't write. He was one of the world's worst writers. Uh, One critic said that reading Bronson Alcott was like watching a train go by with 15 boxcars and one passenger. Louisa decided that she had to make money for the family and that she would do it by writing. Louisa did everything she could get paid for. She was a seamstress, she was a teacher, she was a governess, she was a companion. So she decided to take this essay she had written to, to the great editor of of the time, James T. Fields. And she knew James T. Fields through her father. James T. Fields was Hawthorne's editor. James T. Fields was De Quincey's editor. James T. Fields was the man, right? So she takes her essay and she walks across Boston. They're living on Pinckney Street. And uh, here's what happens. She passed the Boston Common and turned into the bustling center of downtown. There, the spire of the Old South Church presided like a disapproving Puritan dowager over the teeming business of the new Boston. There was the bookshop next to Mrs. Abner's coffee house, where Fields took authors and colleagues for coffee and hot buns. There was the gorgeous palace of the music hall, where Louisa had recently gone to hear Theodore Parker demand equality for women. Now Louisa headed for the second floor of the old corner bookshop, where Fields had his office behind a green curtain that separated him from his young assistant Thomas Niles and the piles of manuscripts he had yet to read. She handed him the manuscript, her first and last memoir essay, How I Went Out to Service. He motioned her to sit and began to read it. She could hear the noise of Thomas Niles' pen scratching and the chatter in the bookstore downstairs. Finally, the great James T. Fields looked up at her and delivered the verdict she would remember for a long time. Stick to your teaching, Miss Alcott. You can't write. That was not a good moment. Um, yet, I think it was the moment at which Louisa May Alcott became a writer. And I think that if you want to be a writer, you take criticism in, and you're hurt, of course, and devastated, of course, but you almost immediately turn it around and go, well, I'll show them. And it's clearly what happened with Louisa Alcott and James T. Fields. James T. Fields was trying to be nice. He tried to help her in her teaching career. He loaned her $40 to help her start a school with her sister. But she took that in in a very interesting way. However, Louisa's career did not turn around at that point, but she decided that she would show James T. Fields and the rest of the world by writing a big, serious novel, a novel that would please her friend Emerson, a novel that would impress her father, a novel which she called Moods. And probably you haven't read it, maybe you haven't even heard of it. I, I don't think it's such a successful novel, and neither did anybody else, which was hard for her, because she loved that novel. Anyway, she got one review which was particularly painful in the North American Review, Uh, from a guy who said, um, the two most striking facts with regard to moods are the author's ignorance of human nature and her self-confidence in spite of that ignorance. 
So that wasn't good, and her writing career was not looking good. And then the, their entire lives came to a halt with the beginning of the Civil War. And when we come back, more of this extraordinary story of perseverance, and my goodness, so much more. The story of Louisa May Alcott continues here on Our American Stories. story of Louisa May Alcott, the writer of Little Woman. Author Susan Cheever has been telling us her story, and Susan Cheever wrote the book Louisa May Alcott, a personal biography. We left off with Alcott's writing career not seeming very promising, but it all came to a stop when the Civil War began. And Louisa and everyone in Concord and everyone in Cambridge um, took it very hard. It, 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 of course, was a nightmare. Nobody thought it was going to happen. Louisa didn't know what to do. She was very involved with abolition. Concord had been a stop on the Underground Railroad. She had seen the whole thing. So she ended up enlisting as a Civil War nurse. And it was she was one of the first female nurses in this country. It, it was thought that nurses had to be men because they had to handle naked bodies, etc., 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 But a woman named Dorothy Dix had started, had convinced the War Department to start a corps of female nurses as long as they were plain, unmarried, and over 30. Louisa fit the bill. So she went down to Washington, D.C. to work in the Union Hotel Hospital. It had been a hotel. It was just barely remodeled into a hospital. And oddly enough, or amazingly enough, the second day she got there was the day that in Fredericksburg, Virginia... A few miles south, General Ambrose Burnside ordered 14 suicidal attacks of the Union Army against the entrenched Confederate Army. Here are historians Chris Mikowski and Donald Vance describing that fateful day. The majority of federal troops at this point are not very optimistic about their chances. They recognize how strong that position is the Confederates have atop Marie's Heights. Union troops have to charge across several hundred yards of open ground just to reach the Confederate position. Once there, they're going to encounter Confederates who were posted very strongly in massed ranks behind a stone wall. If you survived all that, then you had the Confederate artillery, which was on the high ground behind the stone wall. Those guns were able to fire down over the heads of their own men and scour the ground in front of them. So any way you look at it, it was a killing ground. The day at Fredericksburg was one of the worst battles of the war. The ground was carpeted with the Union dead. And the next morning, Louisa May Alcott looked out the window of the Union Hotel Hospital and she saw 
carts as far as she could see. It looked to her like farmers coming to market, but of course it was carts filled with the dead and wounded men from Fredericksburg coming to her hospital. But she loved it. She was great at being a nurse. She knew how to talk to the men. She knew how to dig in. She learned how to wash wounds. She worked with the surgeons. She took the job of being up all night, of being the night nurse. She told them stories from Dickens. She wrote letters home when they were alive, and then when the men died, she wrote that very sad letter home saying that the man had died. She just, everything that she hated and that had troubled her fell away. There was no phoniness. There was no, you know, shame about being poor. It was life and death, and she knew what to do when the stakes were that high, and it was an extraordinary experience for her. And her letters home from the hospital are written in a completely different way than she had ever written before. It was in the Union Hotel Hospital that she found her voice. However, at the Union Hotel, she also fell sick with a lung infection, which in those days they gave you medicine that had mercury in it. So this resulted in her growing sicker and sicker until her father had to come and get her and take her back to Concord. On the brink of death, her and her father put together the book Hospital Sketches, which in the end was the compilation of her letters home and the letters written to the families whose soldiers had fallen. During that time, she was not sure she would live herself. Louisa May Alcott, through the help and care of her family, overcame her illness. And being the hard worker that she was, she didn't wait long before trying to find work again. As she got better, she decided again that it was time to take her next step as a writer. So she went to Thomas Niles, who was her editor. He had been James T. Fields' assistant. And she said to him, you know, what what should my next book be? And he said, well, he said, the only book I could really sell that you might write would be a book for young women. And she was horrified. She was insulted. She was like, do they ask Emerson to write a book for young women? I don't think so, right? What is this? I thought I was a serious writer. You know, all these years she had worked to be a serious writer. She had written all these stories under a pseudonym for Frank Leslie. She had written moods. She had written hospital sketches. And they were still sort of trivializing her, she thought. But what happened was uh, Thomas Niles was an inspired bully. So he wrote Bronson Olcott a letter saying, um, you know, I'm a big fan of your writing. And I would love it if Louisa wrote this book for young women. And if she did, I think we could publish your next book as well. So that was a brilliant stroke. Bronson started in on Louisa, trying to get her to come home and write this book for young women. And eventually he got her. Um, she came home in January of, or went back to Concord. She had She'd gone to Boston. She'd gotten herself a job. She was having a good time. She wasn't going to write the book for young women. But he got her back to Concord in January of 1868 for the purpose of writing this book for young women, which she didn't want to write. And so she stalled and stalled and stalled. She did everything but write the book for young women. January went by, February, March, April, May. Um, finally, in May, she sat down just thinking, oh, you know, I might as well try it. She was totally discouraged about it. She thought she had written a little bit about four sisters who she called the pathetic family. So she just thought, well, I'll just write what happened, you know, which is, of course, not what she did. But that's how it felt to her. 
And, you know, within about three weeks, she had finished the first part of Little Women. She didn't like it very much. Thomas Niles didn't think it was too great either. Um, Thomas Niles had a niece who got hold of the manuscript and was up all night. But it's the minute, almost the minute Thomas Niles published the first part of Little Women in November, uh, the outpouring of letters and admiration was huge. And by Christmas, Louisa May Alcott was one of the best-known writers in the world and one of the wealthiest. So it was really a kind of amazing overnight success uh, because of what happened with, with Little Women, that which she didn't want to write. So after the huge success of Little Women, a letter to James T. Fields... I remember he had lent her money. Dear Mr. Fields, once upon a time you lent me $40, kindly saying that I might return them when I had made a pot of gold. As the miracle has been unexpectedly wrought, I wish to fulfill my part of the bargain and herewith repay my debt with many thanks. Very truly yours, L.M. Alcott. So um, she got her own back. The same man who told her to stick to her teaching, Miss Alcott, you can't write. She got to prove wrong. Little Women wasn't necessarily the book she wanted to write. But in the end, what was its impact on others? And, ultimately, on herself? She wrote the first part. She turned it in. He didn't like it much. He published it. The outpouring was huge. And then he said to her, okay, write the second part. And then they both realized that they had a tiger by the tail. And then, God bless him, he said to her, I can give you a flat fee or you can take a percentage, but if I were you, I would take the percentage. So she did. Neither of them realized what she had done. It's sort of fascinating. And I don't think that's that unusual, I have to say. I think writers often don't know when they've done their best work. The beauty and intrigue of this book is the perspective that Alcott brings. She wrote reflectively on her own life. In one chapter in particular, we find Jo at the age of 25, feeling old and like she has nothing to show for it. She's been focused on her career rather than finding a husband. And in this moment, the narrator detours from the story. To the girl in the 19th century, growing up and not finding a husband could feel like the end of the world. Little Women became a memoir of sorts. So although Alcott was quite happy and successful, She still had reflections from her spinsterhood. It's interesting to contrast her life with the pity she feels for old maids in the following passage. Quote, At 25, girls begin to talk about being old maids, but secretly resolve that they never will be. At 30, they say nothing about it, but quietly accept the fact, and, if sensible, console themselves by remembering that they have 20 more useful happy years in which they may be learning to grow old gracefully. Don't laugh at the spinsters, dear girls, for often very tender, tragic romances are hidden away in the hearts that beat so quietly under the sober gowns, and many silent sacrifices of youth, health, ambition, love itself, make the faded faces beautiful in God's sight. Even the sad, sour sisters should be kindly dealt with, because they have missed the sweetest part of life, if for no other reason. And looking at them with compassion, not contempt, girls in their bloom should remember that they too may miss the blossom time, that rosy cheeks don't last forever, that silver threads will come in that bonny brown hair, and that by and by, 
kindness and respect will be as sweet as love and admiration now. I'm Faith Garcia, and this is Our American Stories. And great job as always, Faith. And what a story it is, Louisa May Alcott's story. And you can hear so much of what we do on the arts and literature in particular. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. We've done stories about Melville, about Hemingway, Fitzgerald, with a reading from The Great Gatsby. Louisa May Alcott's story, in a sense, the story of the 19th century and the beginning of the women's movement in a very real and smart and bold way. All of that here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, and sometimes the stories are fun, as you know, and sometimes they're, well, they're educational, and other times, well, we're just going to tell you the hard ones, and this is a hard one, but it's an important one, and this is the story of homelessness in the end, and we're telling a bunch of these stories, and it's a serious problem in our country that's mostly ignored, and the homeless, well, they don't have a voice. Well, Mark Horovath has experienced the highs and lows of the American dream, from a successful career in TV to barely surviving, homeless and addicted, on Hollywood Boulevard in Los Angeles. But he found his voice again when he founded Invisible People and hit the streets armed with a digital camera and a smartphone to talk to homeless people about their own experiences. Today, he's the online voice of his cause, and he's bringing their stories to millions on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. Today, Mark is hearing from Eric. Eric lives in a homeless shelter in Traverse City, Michigan. He also works full-time as a cook in a local restaurant. Here's Mark. Eric. Yes, we're here, sir. We're here in Traverse City. You're homeless. Yes, sir. Tell me about it. Don't recommend it to anybody. It is a very hard life to live. Even when you're working, uh, it's hard to get to and from. I stayed at Safe Harbor for a few months, uh, trying to get on my feet, trying to get caught up with like child support and past due fines and stuff. And I work in kitchens, so it was hard. I'd get home at like midnight after everybody was already in bed and uh, wasn't allowed to take a shower a lot of the times, so only allowed one blanket, no pillow. Um, still got fed, but I ate at work. But for the most part, it's, it's not a fun life to live. So Safe Harbor is a winter shelter? Yes. Yeah. Um, but Just, because you work nights or late, it was cha- even more challenging than... Yep, and we had to be out no matter what at uh, 8 o'clock in the morning every morning. So I always had to be up early, even if I got home at 12, 31 o'clock, didn't fall asleep till 2. I was waking up at 7 to go walk around all day to walk to work. Yeah, winter shelters do the best they can, but they really are not set up for people that work second or third shift. No. Not at all. Uh, that's for sure. Not at all. They're mostly set up for chronic homeless. People get them inside so they don't freeze to death. Mm. It was close to work, so <laughs> yeah. I took advantage of it. 
But now I'm at the Goodwill. Today will be the first night here, and uh, we'll see how this goes. Now, you've been working. You've been homeless for some time, and you maintain a job. Yes. And you yep. said you like to work. I love to work. I can't, I can't not work. So most people, when they see a homeless person, the first thing they say is, get a job. Right. Well, you got a job, mm -hmm. and you're homeless. So the job's not helping you get out of homelessness. Nope, with between child supports and fines and the way the cost of living is up here, it's it's tough. We, we saw a, a tent earlier across the river here, or the lake or whatever it is. And uh, I mean, basically, uh, the people in the tent, they're working, and that's affordable housing. Yep. It's crazy. So I just met you in the hospital. We picked you up from the hospital. Mm-hmm. And you were in the hospital because? Uh, I was uh, attacked. And? And stayed for five days, had to undergo surgery uh, on the way back to Safe Harbor on my day off. And you were attacked by a combat veteran going through PTSD? True. And a very close friend. Wow. Can you tell me about it? I'd rather not on here. Yeah, yeah, no, no, it's fine. If. Yeah, no, that's totally fine. Um, but being out on the streets is not safe. People don't realize there's so much violence from other homeless people, mm -hmm. and this is a friend, to also uh, kids come around and, uh, you know, their violence is increasing. It's not safe outside. And it's very hard. It's hard to get a job when you got to put your address down on an application, too. Because they see that, and then they want to know why and how and why you're looking for work and why you haven't had work and it's tough. How do you get around that? Experience. I've been doing what I do for 18 years now and have a pretty well established resume and have the work ethic to back it up. What would you want people to know about homelessness that they wouldn't normally know? It can happen to anybody. One day you're on top, next day you're down. It can happen to anybody. Within an hour, you so can you, lose your house, your cars, your kids. So your homelessness happened pretty fast? Pretty quick. Wow. Mm -hmm. I come from Midland, Michigan, a wealthy town where Dow Chemical is, and lost my house, my kids, my car to a violent relationship, and decided to start over and still working on that. <laughs> um, what's your future like? My future is optimistic. The company I'm with is growing. I'm looking forward to hopefully running a restaurant of theirs one day soon. Uh, we're moving to a restaurant downtown here in the next few weeks and they're gonna turn the old one into a banquet hall. So they're gonna be looking for more employees. I've gotten people jobs before and we're still hiring if people are looking for jobs. Um, there's jobs out there if you get out and look, yeah. especially in restaurants, especially in this town. That's why I came up here because it's, it's fairly easy to get a job up here in the restaurant industry. Yeah. Now you're, you said, uh, uh, every time you're in the winter shelter, you lost stuff. Oh yeah. I've lost chef knives. I've lost a bag, tablet, um, knickknacks here and there. They just come up missing. It's no way to live. No. No, it's not. If you had three wishes, what would they be? 
a wife, a home, and a family. Great wishes. Uh, huh. Ten years ago. <laughs> yeah, you'll get them again. I hope so. Well, thank you very much for talking to me. You're welcome. And you were listening to Mark Horvath and Eric and a wife, a home, and a family. Those were his three wishes. He'd had them once. He's hoping to have them again. Invisible People, by the way, is Mark's 501c3 dedicated to educating the people about homelessness through storytelling, news, and advocacy. And there's no better way to advocate than to just give the microphone to the people we're trying to help. For more, search Invisible People on YouTube or go to their website at invisiblepeople.tv. Eric's story, Mark Horovath's story, so many homeless people across this country's story here on Our American Story. And we continue here on Our American Stories, and our next story is about an American legend named Richard King. King's legacy can be seen on every tailgate and door of Ford's upscale F-Series trucks and their Expedition model, too. The logo reads King Ranch. The partnership makes sense because both the Ford Motor Company and the King Ranch in Texas are built on the same heritage, ruggedness, and authenticity. Here to tell the story of Richard King is Roger McGrath, author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes. A former U.S. Marine and former history professor at UCLA, Dr. McGrath has appeared on numerous History Channel documentaries and is a regular contributor to Our American Stories. Here's Roger McGrath. The cattle kings of the Old West carved empires out of the wilderness. They were larger-than-life characters, bold, daring, intelligent, courageous, tough. They had great strength of character and iron wills. No cattle king exhibited these characteristics more than Richard King. Born in New York City to Irish immigrant parents in 1824, Richard King is only three years old when his parents die and he is left in the care of an aunt. At nine years old, he is apprenticed to a jeweler. The jeweler works him hard six days a week. On his day off, the young boy walks down to the docks of Manhattan and watches the ships come and go. He dreams of climbing aboard a ship and sailing off. At 12 years old, he does just that. Here's William Yancey, historian at Texas A&M University, Kingsville. He ran away to the docks in New York City, and he snuck on board an ocean-going ship called the Desdemona, and he hid out in the hold of that ship for about two weeks, just scrounging whatever food he could get his hands on. Now, after two weeks, some sailors found him in the hold of that ship, and at this point, the ship was already well out to sea. So they grabbed him, brought him up to the captain. The captain asked him the question, what is your name, boy? And he immediately answered, my name is Richard King, and you can either throw me overboard or put me to work, but I'm not going back. The captain seemed to be impressed by this young man's attitude, so he put him to work. He served as the cabin boy for the remainder of that voyage and did a fine job for the captain. So when this ship got to its final destination, which was Mobile, Alabama, the captain of the ship believed that this kid had a future in the maritime trade. He was unusually bright. He was a very hard worker. 
He also realized that an ocean-going vessel is probably not the best place to raise an 11-year-old boy. For the next several years, King works in a variety of capacities on several different ships. He demonstrates such intelligence, talent, and leadership that two different ship captains school him in navigation and command of a ship. By the time he is 16, he has a pilot's license and knows the Gulf Coast and the rivers of the Cotton Kingdom like the back of his hand. In 1842, King enlists for service in the Seminole War in Florida. It is during his Seminole War service that he meets Mifflin Kennedy, another ship's officer. King and Kennedy will become lifelong friends. Kennedy had been born in Pennsylvania and, like King, had first gone to sea as a cabin boy and worked his way up to become a ship's pilot. By 1843, Richard King has grown and matured. The 19-year-old is square-jawed, well-muscled, and tall for the times, at 5 feet 11 inches. When provoked, he can turn the air purple with profanity. That makes his friendship with the soft-spoken Quaker, Mifflin Kennedy, something of a surprise. In 1847, Richard King enlists for a second war, taking command of the ship Colonel Cross, and rises to rank of captain in the U.S. Navy during the Mexican War. King serves for the war's duration, transporting troops and supplies. He becomes intimately familiar with the Texas and Mexican coasts and with the Rio Grande River. It is during his service in the Mexican War that King recognizes steamship service would revolutionize the commerce of South Texas especially the Rio Grande Valley. When the war ends, he buys the ship he commands as war surplus and is often steaming. King soon forms a partnership with his old friend, Mifflin Kennedy. By the mid-1850s, their company is operating more than two dozen ships, and thanks in part to their low rates, they are monopolizing shipping on the Rio Grande River. They will continue in this preeminent position for more than two decades. Here again is William Yancey. In 1850, Captain King had been on a steamboat run to Rio Grande City and back. He had had a rough couple of days. He had had problems with his sailors. He had had problems with the engines on his steamboats. The final straw was when he got back to Brownsville. He went to moor his steamboat in the slip where he normally kept it, and somebody already had a boat there. Today, there was a steamboat in this slip. Now, everybody in Brownsville knew not to park their steamboats there because that was Richard King's slip, but today there's a steamboat there. Well, this sent him over the edge. He starts cursing a blue streak. Had to go down the river a little ways, found an empty slip to moor his boat, and he starts walking back towards this houseboat, and he's about to give the occupant of this houseboat a piece of his mind. Well, he never got a chance to do that. There was a young lady on the houseboat who had heard him and she decided to confront him first and the two walked towards each other and this young lady says essentially who do you think you are using language like that this is my father's houseboat he has just as much right to be here as you do why don't you spend less time making a fool of yourself and more time washing your filthy boat and at that richard king didn't really have a response he's not someone who was left speechless very often but this time he was left speechless he turned around, and he walked back to his boat. And then he and his sailors spent the rest of the afternoon washing that boat. 
Over the next several days, he couldn't get this young lady out of his mind. So he's going to go to his best friend and business partner, Mifflin Kennedy. So he goes to Kennedy and asks him, who's the young lady whose father's houseboat's parked in my slip? And Kennedy says, well, that's Miss Henrietta Chamberlain. Her father's the new Presbyterian minister in town. Kennedy said, there's only one way you're going to get to meet her, and that's if you start going to church with her. Well, over the next several weeks and months, he becomes a very faithful Presbyterian. He um, is there every time the doors of the church are open. And to make a long story short, he'll begin a four-year courtship of Miss Henrietta. But eventually, the two of them will be married in 1854 there in Brownsville. Uh, Her father performed the ceremony. The ceremony was at their church. King takes risks when those with fainter hearts shy away. He steams sections of the Rio Grande where others think it impossible to go. He designs ships specifically for the fast currents and narrow bends of the river, enabling him to reach destinations previously considered impossibly remote. While dominating trade on the Rio Grande, King recognizes that much of the land of southwestern Texas would not support farming, but would be good for cattle. As a result, he begins to buy property, including the 53,000-acre Santa Gertrudis Grant. He pays $1,800 for the grant, thought by many to be near worthless because recurrent droughts leave much of the area a wasteland. King reckons he can overcome the dry spells by damming a river and building a reservoir. When a drought does hit, King's cattle have plenty to drink, and he is able to buy cattle for next to nothing from dry properties and increase his herd by thousands. In 1854, Captain Richard King is going to find some help for his cattle operation from an unlikely source. During the 1850s, he made several trips to Mexico to buy cattle to stock his ranch with. Now, one particular occasion, he went to a village called Cruias, which was in the state of Tamaulipas, maybe 100 miles southwest of Matamoros. This village at the time was well known for its cattle herds and for its vaqueros or cowboys, but they were in the middle of a three-year drought. All the grass was dead, there wasn't any water, the cattle were dying. So Richard King goes there and he makes a pitch to the villagers because they own the herd in common. And he basically said to them, why don't you sell me your entire herd? If you don't, they're all gonna die and this way you'll have money in your pocket and you can start over. So the villagers said, let us think about it. You go away, come back tomorrow morning, we'll have an answer for you. So Captain King went away for the evening. He came back the next day, and the villagers said, here's what we're willing to do. We're willing to sell you the entire herd if you'll take as many of us as want to go back to your ranch, and we'll work that herd for you. Well, that's a no-brainer, isn't it? He needs help. They need cattle to work. So about 100 villagers are going to come back to the ranch in Texas with Captain King at that point. They become the first vaqueros or cowboys on the ranch, and over time, they take a lot of pride in working for Captain King. They start to call themselves Quineños, which roughly translated means King's men or King's people. Whenever he can, King buys more land. His philosophy is simple, buy land and never sell. And when we come back, we continue the story of Richard King here on Our American Stories. 
And we return to Our American Stories and the remarkable story of Cattle King, Richard King. Let's continue where we last left off. During the Civil War, Texas secedes from the Union, joins the Confederacy. Within months, the U.S. Navy effectively blockades the Gulf Coast, cutting off the South's greatest source of income, cotton exports. In these dire circumstances, King becomes one of the Confederacy's heroes, a blockade runner. He is so successful that he becomes a legend. It doesn't hurt that he is handsome and well-built. He becomes a real-life Rhett Butler. All we've got is cotton and slaves and arrogance. Union forces raid the King Ranch late in 1863 and loot and burn everything they can. However, their principal target, Richard King, escapes. And when the Confederates retake South Texas in 1864, King is back in business. With the Confederate surrender in April 1865, though, King slips into Mexico. King's story might have ended right there. But late in 1865, he secures a pardon from President Andrew Johnson and resumes all of his former activities. Here again is William Yancey, historian at Texas A&M University, Kingsville. Now, it's not until 1867 before he really starts to reestablish his full-time cattle operation. And that just goes to show what good sense of timing the man had. Because around 1867, there started to develop a huge market for beef in the Northeast. As the Northeast becomes more industrialized, people are moving into cities, so they're not raising and growing their own food. You also have a large influx of immigrants from Europe. There is a need for beef. And Richard King becomes one of the first South Texas ranchers to realize that you can make quite a bit of money supplying that need. Now, at the time, there aren't very many railroads in Texas. so. In order to get the beef to where it is needed, you have to walk them to where the railroads were. And that meant cattle drives. Richard King will become one of the first South Texas ranchers to drive cattle, specifically the Texas Longhorn, from his ranch in South Texas to railheads first in Missouri and then later in Kansas. At the time, you could purchase Longhorns for between two to four dollars a head in South Texas, sell them for around twenty dollars a head in Fort Worth, maybe even as high as 40 by the time you got to Kansas. And Captain King was able to make a considerable amount of money doing this. Eventually, Longhorns, however, are going to fall out of favor in northeastern markets. The problem with Longhorns is their beef is very tough and stringy. And uh, eventually, as railroads start to penetrate more of the country, it's easier for ranchers in other areas to raise better tasting breeds of beef load them onto railroad cars, and ship them to slaughterhouses in Chicago for movement on to the east. In 1869, he leads his first herd north on the long drive. For King, coming from his ranch in the extreme southwestern region of Texas, the drive to the Kansas Railheads is more than 1,200 miles. Despite the length of the drive, and losses to stampede swollen streams and Indians, King makes enormous profits. From 1869 through 1884, King sends well more than 100,000 head of cattle to the railheads in Kansas or to ranges of the Northern High Plains. 
He continues to plow his profit back into cattle and land until he has hundreds of thousands of acres and tens of thousands of cattle. If Rhett Butler in Gone with the Wind is a Richard King-like character during the Civil War, then Tom Dunson is a Richard King-like character in Red River. You earned it. King's great cattle operation is not without problems, which include regular cross-border raids by Mexican banditos such as Juan Cortina and Juan Flores. In three years, King loses 33,000 head of cattle. He asks the state for help, but the governor refuses. In 1867, King begins to fence his huge ranch. At first, his crews put up wooden fences. After Bob Wire appears in 1874, the work goes faster. In 1883 alone, the ranch uses 190,000 pounds of Bob Wire. During the mid-1870s, King wages a personal war with Flores and his banditos. Entirely at his own expense, King supplies Captain Lee McNally and his company of Texas Rangers with horses, food, and the latest Winchester rifles for pursuit of the banditos. McNally is spectacularly successful, but not without controversy. He not only pursues the Mexican bandits through Texas, but right into Mexico. In Mexico, he destroys several bandito sanctuaries and defeats a Mexican army. While the U.S. government is apoplectic over McNally's border crossing, Richard King couldn't be happier. By the time of his death in 1885, King has increased the size of his ranch to 614,000 acres. And those are acres he actually owns rather than leases from the government. Following his instructions to buy land and never sell, his son-in-law, Robert Clayburg, adds more acreage to the ranch until by the 1890s the King Ranch is larger than the state of Rhode Island. Like the eastern industrial barons, King tries to control all businesses related to his ranching operation. He invests in railroads, feedlots, packing houses, ice plants, harbors, and ships. King, in many ways, is a king. To improve his longhorns, King brings in Durham bulls from Kentucky. His goal is to produce a steer with a longhorn's toughness and a Durham's bulk. Here again is Professor Yancey. In 1940, the U.S. Department of Agriculture would recognize the Santa Gertrudis breed as the first breed of beef cattle produced in the Western Hemisphere, and really the first anywhere in the world in over a hundred years. In pursuing his dream, Richard King invents modern ranching. Farmers before him tended to raise cattle as a sideline. In the cities, fresh meat was a luxury few could afford. The King Ranch turns ranching into a big business. It also helps turn Americans into a nation of beef eaters. Richard King is a colorful character whose violent temper and wild, rough-hewn nature never diminish with age. King gets in several fights in his lifetime and seems to enjoy them. On one occasion, a big, angry cowboy exclaims to King, 
that if he were not Captain King, the great cattle baron, he would not be able to get away with the profane remarks that he just made. King is no longer a young man, but the old cattleman explodes. Damn you! Forget the riches and the captain title, and let's fight. And fight they do. It is one of the best fights anybody can recall. A cowboy and the captain pummel each other with vicious blows for half an hour. Then, bloody and arm-weary, they shake hands. Thereafter, the cowboy says he will stand back-to-back with King anywhere and anytime and die for him if need be. We tend to think of Hollywood's portrayals of the cattle kings of the Old West as exaggerated. Actually, a close look at Richard King demonstrates that such a classic Western as Red River and John Wayne's character of Tom Dunson told a tale no taller than the facts of the real life of Richard King. And great job to Greg Hengler, and special thanks, as always, to Roger McGrath, author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes. And also a special shout-out to William Yancey, historian at Texas A&M University, Kingsville. Richard King's story, here on Our American Story. For more, go to ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for the podcast. And we continue here on Our American Stories, and we tell all sorts of stories from all walks of life here on this show, as you know. Some of the stories are inspiring, we hope, Some are pretty tough, and some, like this one, well, they're a mixture of both. Here's retired Navy SEAL Senior Chief Petty Officer Jimmy Hatch speaking frankly to some U.S. Naval Academy midshipmen about what happened to him after being wounded in action. My life was being a Navy SEAL. That's all I wanted to do. I... I didn't realize the extent of my commitment to it until afterwards when I could no longer do it. And uh, the way my career, uh, as I call it, ended um, was not the easiest way to go. It really, really uh, was difficult. It was a hostage rescue mission. We were trying to rescue that young kid, uh, Bo Bergdahl, that's been in the news a bit. Couldn't see the guys. I knew there were people out there. Uh, In a hostage rescue mission, you can't just shoot people. <laughs> you got to see who's who in the zoo. It's at night. Uh, the visibility wasn't very good. And we used the dog to find those guys. And the dog found them. And the only w- way I knew that they were hostile was I saw one guy shoot the dog in the head. Um, at that point, I could see with the muzzle flash that he was armed. So I started uh, filling him in, as it were, shooting him. And his buddy panicked like they always do uh, because they suck. And he sprayed and uh, thank God he didn't hit the other two guys that were with me Um, but he hit me and he didn't have the decency to hit me in the body armor that I had to wear all the time so blew my femur out of the back of my leg tossed me in the air and I'm in the air and I'm thinking don't scream, don't scream, don't scream hit the ground, what did I do? 
It hurt so bad. And I felt bad for years. I felt like such a weak individual for screaming. But man, it was powerful. At that point, I transitioned. I didn't know it, but I became an observer. A witness, as it were, to my crew and their spirit and their strength. Guys had to finish the gunfight. I couldn't put my tourniquet on myself because when I tried to do it, it my femur would twist and I would scream some more, which is bad. I wasn't really useless. I was actually a hazard. Because if you got a guy that's screaming around you, they just got to throw grenades in the direction of that guy, right? It was bad. I didn't want to scream anymore. So I didn't put my tourniquet on until the gunfight was over. Two uh, people who had been to an advanced army medic school heard me on the radio or heard on the radio that I'd been hit. And they came from different parts of the target uh, over open ground, having to shoot people to get to me. And they went to work on me and saved me. I got flown out, medevaced, um, sat there with the dog at my feet when the helicopter flew us out. Um, and this is the first time where I'm in the company of other people who had gotten hurt. And I realized as I'm laying there that I'm not hurt that bad. That there were people on that plane being medevaced with me that were severely hurt. People that didn't look like humans anymore. They were wrapped up in gauze and they had hoses running in and out. These little things were etched on my hard drive. These are things that I had to deal with later. One night I stuck a gun in my mouth after I'd gotten treatment to get my leg healed up. I stuck the gun in my mouth in front of my wife, which is pathetic. I know how to use a gun. If I wanted to die, I'd be dead, right? It was a cry for help. I had become addicted to the pain meds and I was washing them down with Stoli's vodka, just a tip, don't do that, not a good way to go. Put a gun in my mouth in front of my wife. My wife was scared to death. She got the gun away from me. She immediately called my unit. My unit said, call the police, we can't get there quick enough. She called the police, told them exactly who I was in the world and what I'd been doing for the majority of my life and that I was going nuts. And those guys came to my house, they knew who I was, they knew I had guns and knives. They had every right to at least give me a good tasing or a beating, you know. They de-escalated the situation. They kept me calm uh, until my crew got there. My crew put me in a car, took me to the Naval Hospital, uh, where I agreed to go to the fifth floor, which is the psych ward. I was humiliated. Um, I needed help, but I didn't know how to get it. I had alienated myself and pushed myself away from people. So... There I am, sitting in the hospital in my purple pajamas with a towel this big so I don't hang myself. And I'm embarrassed. I was a team leader on a SEAL team. I had over 150 direct action combat missions. I'd been in a lot of gunfights. I was proud of what I had done. And now I'm sitting in the psych ward with kids working there that are just have been in the Navy a year or two that are like babysitting me. I was so embarrassed. And uh, my crew came to see me. And I was embarrassed, and I didn't want him to come see me. I never once realized how fortunate I was to that point in my life. Um, quick tip, though. If you're ever in the psych ward, and God, I hope you'd ever have to go there. Uh, don't do this. So my buddies came to see me. I'm a, I'm a big skydiver. They bring these skydiving magazines in, and they hand them to me across the table. One of the young... Uh, people that worked in the psych ward came over and said, Sir, we got to take those magazines from you. And I said, well, why? And they said, well, i got staples in them, and you could hurt people with those staples. And I said, if you think I need staples to kill everybody in this room, you're one that's crazy. Don't ever do that. <laughs> Never do that. Do not threaten the staff in the psych ward. Huh? 
you'll probably get a good shot and you're going to stay there like I did a few extra days. So uh, while I sat there, my buddies had gone to work um, trying to figure out what they were going to do to me. People at my unit, uh, very senior people, uh, were involved in my personal little saga. And it wasn't like their bandwidth wasn't full of other things like other combat missions and other things going on with other people in the unit. But they showed me their value. I could not deny that they valued me because they committed so much to making sure that I got better. The same guy who saved my life in combat, he flew me, rented a car, and drove me to this psych hospital. See, you get a lot of medals in gunfights when you save people's lives. You don't get any medals for driving your buddy to the psych hospital. That's a true commitment. Why would he do that? Because he cared about me. I had value, right? So I'm checking in to the hospital, and they're going through my bag like I'm a felon. I'm offended by this because I'm a tough guy, Navy SEAL commando, and... I look at my buddy and I said, hey, man, I'm not doing this. I'm running. There's no way. He said, well, look, first of all, you can't run anymore. <laughs> what a jerk, right? <laughs> yeah, thanks for that, buddy. And secondly, you need to do this. You need to do this for yourself and for your family and for the rest of us that are coming down the road. And he was right. When somebody saves your life, you owe them a couple things. One, you can't disrespect them. And two... You can't make the efforts that they extended on your behalf a waste. So at that point, I realized that I was going into this hospital. It was a great thing for me. I spent a lot of time in that hospital. I think it was close to uh, four and a half months. And why it was great for me was that I realized that you don't have to be in combat to have traumatic things happen. This was the turning point for me, one of the major ones. I'm in a group session. There are professional people from the civilian world in this group session with me. And they'd all been through tough stuff. And we're going around, we're talking about these things, and we get to a young woman, she's probably 30 years of age. And she said, when I was 11 years old, two of my uncles raped me in front of my father on Christmas Eve. What do I say to that? I've got problems. I got shot in the leg on a mission I volunteered for with a group of people that I loved. And I'm feeling sorry for myself. And this young woman is in here brawling with this. What do you think she thinks every year at Christmas Eve? That was a turning point for me. Life's combat, man. You don't have to be a Navy SEAL to have things happen to you that are difficult. Your people don't have to be combat people to have things happen to them that are going to make them go nuts. So I graduate from this uh, little hospital and I go home uh, and I continue to get treatment, seek a counselor, I get retired from the service. Um, point with all that is that I didn't want help. I didn't want people to think I was weak. I didn't want people to know that I was suffering. I didn't want to suffer. And for a long time, I wished I'd have died that night. Because, you know, nobody hates dead people, right? You don't snore. You don't cause problems. They name a chow hall after you. It's all cool, right? I didn't know what I was going to be anymore. My buddies injected themselves into my life over and over, and they, they forced me to know that I was valued. Sometimes the word stigma is used. You know, there's a stigma with getting involved in people's lives. I call it cowardice. I watched my buddies, same guys who saved me in a gunfight overseas, I watched them save me again. They pushed through it. They weren't embarrassed. They knew that I needed help. It was that simple. And they were going to patch me up again. So I hope, if you guys are ever in the position where you see that somebody's having a difficult time, you realize that maybe being embarrassed is the biggest risk if you confront them about it. 
but it's probably worth it. And what a story, and thanks to Navy SEAL Senior Chief Petty Officer Jimmy Hatch for sharing that story. And there's a stigma that comes along with mental illness and with soldiers. Oh, my goodness. How many times do you say the word, I was embarrassed? I was a team leader, and now I'm sitting in the psych ward. I was embarrassed, he said. Never once did I realize how fortunate I was. Brother, I love the line, you don't get any medals driving your buddy to the psych ward. And it's so true. My life was being a Navy SEAL. The way my career ended, it was really difficult. And so many men who fight for us, right? who fight for all of us, that's the case. He came back, and my goodness, did he have troubles adjusting. And it took that one girl's story to turn everything around, having to deal with being raped by uncles in front of her father. And he thought, what the heck am I complaining about? How lucky I am. I did something I volunteered for, surrounded by people I loved. And my goodness, having those good people around him to help him through this difficult time. And now he's got a mission. He has a nonprofit that has a lot to do with helping prepare working dogs for life in the working world. Navy SEAL Senior Chief Jimmy Hatch's story here on Our American Stories. 